Our text this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 17, verses 15 through 19, and chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. You'll find this, you'll find these passages uh, in the Bible and the chair in front of you on page 12. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah had bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brian. You may be seated. We're continuing in our trek through Genesis, still on the story of Abraham. Allow me to pray for us And then we'll look at today's passages of scripture. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to learn from your word. Thank you that you have inspired those before us to record these things and that they are exactly what you have for us, what you need for us to have so that we may know you, that we might be saved and that we might be with you forever. And so I pray to that end today that this sermon would advance that cause. We would know you, that people would come to know your grace and your gospel and your love, and that we who have been chosen, we who have been called, would spend eternity in joy and satisfaction with you, our God, our Savior, our Creator, our Father. Thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, If you can't tell, uh, Abraham's life was basically drama all the time, okay? Um, In fact, this story that we're talking about today in these two parts really begins back in Genesis 16. So let me uh, recap what's happened previously. Um, So... Uh, If you remember, God promised Abraham uh, that he would make him a great nation, that he would have a son. Uh, There's this moment in Genesis 16 where Sarai and Abram, still their names, 
they grow uh, very impatient. They grow impatient. And so let me tell you what happens. They're, um, they're in, uh, Abraham's in his late 80s. Sarai at this point would be in her late 70s. And they decide to help God with his plan. I'm, I notice the air quotes here. Um, if you're listening online, I, I just did air quotes. Okay. Um, they're going to help God with his promises. So here's what happens. Genesis 16 verses 1 and 2. Now Sarai... Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Uh, Things go from there. Listen, what are they do? What are they doing? They're interpreting their situation as a problem for God. They're interpreting their situation as an obstacle for God. And so uh, not so much doing God a favor. What do they do? Of course, they do it in the name of the Lord, right? But what are they doing? They're rebelling in the name of God. And so they reinterpret the promises of God and they act. And how do they act? What do they do? They act with infidelity and polygamy. That's what happens. Now, out of this reinterpretation, out of this rebellion comes Hagar and Ishmael. A whole slew of stories and connections come from the birth of Ishmael. Um, Connections, issues, jealousy starts flying everywhere. In fact, after the birth of Isaac, at one point, Abraham sends them away into the wilderness to die. It's really just an awful story. It's a total mess. And what created it? Human attempt to be like God. Once again, we come to this. They're making decisions about God's will. They're making decisions about where God's plan is going. And so we see here that Abraham and Sarai, they just didn't want to wait any longer. So what did they do? They just did what they wanted. They did what they wanted. Now that situation happened 13 years before the conversation we looked at last week between God and Abraham. That, that situation happened before God called Abraham to have a new name and reissued his promises and gave Abraham the sign of his promises, circumcision. So let's recount what happened. Circumcision, the physical sign of a spiritual reality. This was God calling Abram to, to, to bend his life to the spiritual realities. What was the spiritual reality? To believe and obey the promise of God. That's what he's calling him to. The sure promises of God. And all, all of that happened after the Hagar incident. We have to understand this context. It's very important. After the Hagar incident. And so what can we learn from this? God means what he says. God means what he says. God upholds his promises despite our sin. And so... First two points of the sermon. First point, this reality, the order of events, gives us a picture into the substance of God's love for his people. Despite Abram's and Sarai's sin, despite the mess they created, God gives them the blessing anyway. (laughs) God gave it anyway. This is the same kind of love that Jesus talks about in John 6. Listen to the words and take them at face value. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you hear those words? 
It's not dependent upon our sin or our not sin, our obedience or our disobedience. Our closeness with Christ is dependent on God giving us to Christ and his promise to save us. And so what is the substance of God's love? It's steady, it's present. God doesn't pull back in punishment. He doesn't turn away from us in shame or disappointment. He keeps the power and the truth of his love close to his people always, always. The second point, we can see certainly the substance of God's love. We can also see the character of his promises. God doesn't make wishy-washy promises. God does not base his promises on the shaky foundation of human behavior. God will not even allow, will allow not even the, the terribleness of our sin to upset his plans to fulfill his promises to us. Now, these two things, the substance of his love, the character of his promises is not an argument for, well, I guess we can do what we want. <laughs> that's, that's not what this is for. It's not what that should lead us to. These two truths are an argument for throwing ourselves in worship before God. Bending our lives to his will. Why? Because he is a God who's committed to loving us. Now, if you've noticed, we haven't even got to the passage. And I already have two points in. That's some sneaky preaching right there. So we're already two points in. We haven't even started the passage. So anyway, now to the passage. This is going to be a really long sermon, just so you know. Um, just kidding. It's not. Uh, we start this week finishing up the conversation from last week. So originally I was going to preach just Genesis 21, but really you have to track back to these other two passages. So here at the end of Genesis 17, remember God has talked with Abraham, asked him to change his name, initiated circumcision, all these things. He's asking Abram to, to change his life according to spiritual realities. He then has a conversation with Abram, now Abraham, about his wife. And so we look at these verses, verses 15 and 16 to begin. And God said to Abraham, as for your wife Sarai... You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Okay? Those, there's two parts in there that are very important to what happens next. But what's he saying? God, again, is changing Sarai's name to Sarah. Now, uh, they, both Sarai and Sarah mean princess, but what's happening here is God is moving her identity away from the moon god. If you remember, Sarai is the name of the wife of the moon god. Very interesting fact. Hold, that on, hold on to that for some trivial pursuit, I'm sure, in your life. Um, but so she, he's reassociating Sarah as a, the princess associated with a pagan religion to now she's a princess associated with him. And what does he do? He promises twice in just a short amount of time to give her a son, her directly. In verses 17 and 18, Abraham's all about the shenanigans again, man. Here we go. Verses 17 and 18, Abraham is tempted once again to act on his own. Look at this. Abraham fell on his face, and he has this kind of personal moment. He laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham so kindly gave God a suggestion. He said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What's happening? 13 years ago, before this conversation, Having children seemed unlikely. And so what did Sarai and Abram do? They went their own way. They made their own choices. They, they fulfilled God's plan, trying to help God. And, and now, as 
Abram, Abraham now is approaching 100 years old, we've moved from unlikely to impossible. Impossible in his mind. Even unappealing. Think about this. Imagine having a baby at 99 years old. My goodness. God help us. And so what is his suggestion? He says to God, just use Ishmael. Just use Ishmael. He's my son. He's here already. He's a boy. He's being very practical if you think about it. And I love this idea. If, if you didn't know God didn't have a body and wasn't from a physical place, you'd think he's from New England because here's how he responds. God said no. Okay, God said no. No niceties, he just shoots it down right away. No, that's not what we're doing. Um, and so, now listen, before we scoff at the audacity of Abraham's laughing at God and the audacity of his suggestion to God, listen, we do this, I do this. We look at our life, we think what we know what God's plan is, and we say, God, listen, just use this thing. You, it's right here, use it. How much glory would you get, God, just by using it? We do what Abraham is doing. And what's God's response to us from Isaiah 55? My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Our idea of how God might fulfill whatever we think his plan might be First off, oftentimes, what do we do? We're actually substituting God's plan for our own, okay? So we're talking about God's will for our lives. Often it's just what we want for our lives. All these ideas, what, what's wrong with us that, that we can't really think straight about this? How is God's mind bigger than ours? Of course, he's our creator, but our minds, our hearts, our desires are poisoned by sin. They're poisoned. We have limited understanding of what God wants what God desires, how he's gonna get us there. And so what lesson should we take from this passage? What lesson should we take from this passage that God has perfect timing? God has perfect timing. He's going to act as he has determined to act and there's comfort in this. He acts according to his own promises. His own promises. And so God's response isn't just no, he doesn't flinch at Abraham's suggestion, Abraham's idea. He finishes and says, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God makes the promise anyway, once again. So how might we classify this reaction. We've seen that first one in, in Genesis 16. How should we classify that? Abram and Sarai do whatever they want. They reject kind of God's way of doing it and they're like, we'll just handle this from here, God. Here, we see a little bit of a change. They're still waiting on God, but impatiently. And I think there's at least a residue of disbelief here. The laughter, the, the practical suggestion, these things are showing that they really are not quite sure exactly how God's going to do this, and they may not really trust that it will actually happen. But then, <laughs> praise the Lord, we have Genesis 21. God said he would do something, and guess what? God does what he says he will do. Look at verses 1 through 5, Genesis 21. Genesis 21. 
the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Notice the author here is really doubling down on this idea. And what happened? Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. God does what he says he's going to do. And I love this next part of the story because it really, it zooms in on Sarah. It zooms in on Sarah. And Sarah's really feeling things and thinking things. And, and the author of Genesis wants us to see these things and experience these things with her. And so there's four really statements that she makes. And so let's just take a look at these rather quickly. First in verse six, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. The laughter has changed. The laughter's changed. It's not laughter of disbelief. This is a laughter that's kind of basking in the joyous ridiculousness that God has put her in, the situation God's put her in. She's not laughing at the prospect of having children. She's laughing at the fact that God has made it take place at this time. She continues by saying, everyone who hears will laugh over me. They're not laughing to make fun of. These things are so unbelievable that when people hear about it, they're going to be astonished. It's not a laugh of denial or a laugh of mocking. It's a laugh of amazement. Verse 7, and she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Her disbelief, church, is turned into a testimony. You see that? Her disbelief turned into a testimony. There's no one who will hear about the situation and say, knew it, called it. Nobody would, nobody would do this. It's, it's, it's insanely impossible to think that this would be how God fulfilled his promise. And then you have the joyous satisfaction of this last phrase. Think about this. Think about how long they've waited. How many times they've heard the promise and there in her arms is the fulfillment and she says, yet I have borne him a son in his old age, a, declar a confident declaration of what's taken place. Faith has been turned to seeing. Now, what do we see here? Joy is the result of God's timing and his plans for his people. That's the result. The result when we get to the place where God is bringing us, joy is the result. Satisfaction's the result. You get the sense that here Sarah is saying, of course he would do this. Of course, he's good. Of course. Of course God is doing this now. Why did I ever doubt? Now, there's a reality here that we have to understand. The next few verses, we're not going to look at this in depth, but uh, there are also regrets here. The next few verses of this book, you, get the, you, get, you see the, the conflict between Sarah and Hagar flare up. And what is the conflict there? That conflict is a direct result. It's a consequence of Sarai and Abram's sinful impatience earlier. Literally, her consequences live with her. But for now, let's look at Sarai, not regretting previous decisions, but look at how she's basking in the joy of God's fulfilled promise. She's expressing here a deep understanding of the results of what it looks like to wait for God and to believe his word and to obey his commands. 
she's expressing. As we look at these three different scenarios, outright rebellion with Abraham and Sarah and the situation with Hagar, we have this kind of mixture of disbelief, but under, like kind of waiting impatiently in Genesis 17. And then here, the, the outpouring of joy and satisfaction of seeing God's plans fulfilled. We demonstrate all three of these activities in our lives. We demonstrate all three. We demonstrate all three. Let's talk about each one. There are times in our life where we just aren't waiting for God at all. <laughs> Either we've given up on him completely, I'll handle it, or we're just taking life by the horns. And what, what is this kind of living marked with? It's, it's marked with self-reliant impatience. The outcome of our life, the outcome of situations in our life are squarely on our shoulders. So what do we feel? We feel the shame of failure. We feel the anxiety of the unknown. We feel anger towards people who are standing in our way. How dare you? But what are we doing? What am I doing? How do I know that this is what it's like? Because I've done it. We're charging ahead. We're determined to get that thing. And honestly, God can come along or not, or he can eat my dust. Doesn't really matter. I'm going to get it. It's on me. Now, maybe there's, like, there's a lighter version of this where you're accepting of God's role in your life, and so you're, you're really more acting like Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 17 where you're waiting for God, you say you are, but really it's impatient, and, and there's kind of that residue, again, of disbelief. And it's actually very similar, it's very similar to what it looks like to just do what you want. Again, you're trying to take matters into your own hands. You're charging ahead. There's that angry demanding, but sometimes there's a, a level of religion in this way of thinking. Maybe you think, well, God's really what he's waiting for is for me to shape my life up. So if I just do this and this and this, then God will finally deliver on this thing I've been waiting for. This time when I've been in this kind of impatient waiting on God, it's, it's those times in my life that I forget to pray for long periods of time or I choose not to pray. There's just silence between me and God. I'm not reading his word. And here's what I'd say. Genesis 16, Genesis 17, the times when we're in utter rebellion, doing what we want or waiting impatiently, they, they have the same outcome. Either not believing, not waiting, or even waiting impatiently, they always end. Our timing, our plan ends with confusion and with sin. That's how where it ends up. When we're on our schedule, when we're trying to plan our lives out for God or replacing his plan for us with our own plan that only ends in one place, hurt, confusion, sin. Now, there's a reassuring truth. We've already mentioned it. Despite Abraham's infidelity with Sarah's blessing, despite their laughing disbelief, despite their wanting to help God with, hey, just use Ishmael, their practical advice, the good news, the reassuring truth is, is that God's plans are perfect and unchanging and God delivers the promise of Isaac anyway. That's grace. That's what grace is. God giving us what we do not deserve. And although we try to do things our way, impatiently believing or not believing at all, when we disbelieve that God could act in miraculous ways 
or we're replacing his plan for our life to prepare us for the receipt of his promise and we're replacing it with our own, listen, God's not hindered. God's not hindered. It doesn't affect who God is or what he says, the substance of his love or the character of his promises. Everything that God says will come true and therefore, guess what? What he says will come true. It's circular. And so where does that leave us, church? It leaves us in a place of freedom. Freedom for what? A better way, which is waiting on God, believing in his promises and obeying his word. That's the better way. Believing, waiting, obeying. Not assuming that we know God's plan, replacing his plan with ours, or, or, or we're, instead we're going to be seeking his will in humble prayer. We're going to be seeking his will, constantly submitting ourselves to his word. God, what's your plan for me? What's your plan for me? Waiting and obeying. Now, this is not doing nothing. This is not just like, well, God's going to work it out. No, this is singing and praising and praying and learning and reading Allowing the substance of his love and the character of his promises to wash over us again and again and again. Why are we free to do that? Why is that even a, a, a desirable way for us to conduct our lives? Because God's timing and his plan, where does it always lead? It leads to joy and satisfaction. Joy and satisfaction. God's, God will always do what he says he will, he's going to do. And so what is our job? To wait, believe, and obey. You, you've got to believe that Sarah holding that little boy had wished she had just waited and believed and obeyed. You, you've got to believe that. You've got to know that. Now, what's interesting about Abraham and Sarah is they actually didn't see all the things God had promised come to fruition. If Isaac was just the down payment. It was one little piece of evidence of God's work and his fulfillment. And we're going to see next week that it really gave them something that caused really great, strong faith. We're going to look at Genesis 22 and, and, and what that faith begat. But listen, church, we have seen the greater thing. We have more than just Isaac. We've seen what God does with his promises. We have a great hope. We have great evidence as to why we should simply wait patiently for God's timing in our life and is the cross of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. We know what comes next. We see God securing that. We, we know the fruition of God's whole plan. Christ return as he rings in an eternity of what? Joy and satisfaction. That's what's waiting for us. And in the meantime, as we wait for this guaranteed thing, what are we called to do? I'm a broken record. <laughs> wait, believe, and obey. That's what we're called to do. And so as we journey in this life, waiting for God's fruition of his plan, believing in his promises, obeying, what is he doing? He's preparing us to receive the promise preparing us as the bride of Christ to be presented to him in eternity. It doesn't mean that waiting isn't hard. <laughs> it doesn't mean that waiting isn't hard. The good news is that God 
waits with us. He's with us in the waiting. God's not called us to wait while he's remaining silent, nor is he not asking us to try and obey without guidance or believe without guidance. So in addition to all of his teachings before the crucifixion, God gave his disciples, us, his his followers, a very specific instruction and promise. And if you want to summarize it, it has to do with waiting, believing, and obeying. And here's what he says. Here's what it looks like to wait, believe, and obey. He says, and all authority, it's from Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. As we look at that very familiar passage to those who go to church, we tend to look at the go piece and the teach piece, but listen, there's something we, we do in this. The first thing that we are commanded to do is to learn. <laughs> we're commanded to learn how to do what God, Christ has called us to do, and then we're called to go and make disciples and do the same for them. And here's the promise. He says, I will be with you. Christ is with us. And so the Lord's Supper, what is it? It's much like baptism. It's a sacrament. It's a physical sign of a spiritual reality. The sign here is the bread. The sign is the wine and the juice. The sign is that we're doing it together. And what's the reality? It's a journey of waiting. It's a journey of believing and obeying. And Christ is here with us. That's what it means. And so this morning, who should come? And receive this comfort. Those who believe that they are in need. They're in need. That we, we believe that we're those people who replace God's plan with our own. Or we're trying to do it on our own. We need Jesus Christ. And we confess and profess that he is the only satisfaction. And the only joy that can be found. If you believe those things, you've been baptized. You've made that profession of faith. You're called to come and receive the grace of the Lord's Supper, receive the comfort of Christ's presence. If you do not believe those things, or you're living your life currently in that way that says, uh, God can come with me or eat my dust, and you have no plans on changing, the Bible says it doesn't make any sense for you to come and receive this. It do, it doesn't, it's not what you believe, that you need to be comforted by this. And so we would echo that same Request that same command that those who do not believe in Jesus Christ as their only Lord and Savior would not come and participate. Let's take just a moment of silent prayer and then I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing before we distribute the Lord's Supper. Father, waiting is so difficult. At times, believing is difficult. Lord, obeying, (laughs) it is difficult. It's difficult for broken creatures like me, broken creatures like us here. And so we declare that we need your presence. We need this supper. We need the constant reminder of the Father's promise. We need the tangible sign of Christ's love. We need the sustaining nourishment of the Holy Spirit. And here in these simple elements, 
you give us all that. And so I pray today, this time, that you would bless it, bless this meal, and bless us as we take it. I pray these things in the name of our blessing, Jesus. Amen.